Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, uh, and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? It's autumn, and I am very happy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Alyssa, it, it's so autumn that Alyssa was literally just apple picking. I might I might have her rank apple varieties uh, at the end of this episode. Maybe that'll be a bonus. I don't know. We'll see. All right. First up in controversies and controversies, uh, Universal's The Exorcist Believer was the biggest hit at the box office this weekend. It took in $27 million. That's great. I mean, it's not as good as the Halloween reboots opening weekend, which took in $76 million. It was headed up by the same creative team a couple years back. You know, but the $27 million, that's that's pretty good. This only cost $30 million to make. So that's a, a big win for Universal, right? Well, no, because uh, the, the good folks at Universal spent $400 million to secure the rights to the announced trilogy of pictures. We got three Exorcist movies coming. The first one is down, two more on the way. That deal in particular is a fascinating reminder of the crazy time period where studios were just throwing endless fire hoses of cash at everything, at just literally everything in the hopes of competing with Netflix, which itself uh, spent like $450 million on the rights to make two just two, not even to buy the whole series, just to make two Knives Out sequels. And then uh, another half billion dollars more to buy the rights to Roll Dolls' entire catalog. Universal spent $150 million more than Amazon did to acquire the rights to make their Lord of the Rings prequel. The, the numbers that were thrown around between 2020 and 2022 or so are just astronomically mind-blowing. Now, Universal will get more out of this deal than just three movies, in addition to buying out all the back end, you know, and picking up a series of flicks that they think will drive people to their streaming service, Peacock. They can also use Exorcist branding for Universal Studios' beloved Halloween Horror Nights attraction, things like that, okay? So maybe this all works out for them in the end. Maybe, maybe, maybe it all, maybe the $400 billion was money well spent. Everyone flocks to Peacock to watch everything there. I, we'll see. We'll see. Um, that said, the whole thing kind of, and I thought this at the time, at the, even at the time, I was like, this makes no sense for a horror movie because the whole point of horror, the standard horror economics, if I was writing a standard economics of horror textbook, the whole point is you, you make the movies cheap and then they make a decent amount of money. And sometimes they make a lot of money. Sometimes you, sometimes they make an, an enormous return on investment. A $30 million opening uh, on a $30 million budget is a pretty good deal. It's not a very good deal if your budget is actually like $133 million plus the $30 million. This really feels like a relic from an old era that has kind of passed us by. That strange moment in the midst of the pandemic when studios were just desperate to build their streaming services and bought anything they could. And we're going to see how much of the streaming boom was simply an artifact of that moment when interest rates were tiny, uh, accumulating debt didn't really cost that much money, and companies were happy to take losses to build up audience share. Peter, uh, in hindsight, which of these deals do you think is the, the most insanely extravagant? I, I think it's this one. I think it's the Exorcist deal. Because the Exorcist, they paid $400 million for the rights. And that's $150 million more than Amazon paid for the rights to Lord of the Rings, which in recent memory has made a huge amount of money at the box office and is just obviously like a, a, a big cultural uh, force 
decades and decades later. Yes, The Exorcist, the original Exorcist, made $440 million at the box office uh, and was the, you know, the top grossing horror film for a, a bunch of decades. It's a, it is a movie that people remember. But I think this is crazy. I even think the idea that they that they're going to make up some money with this by having by somehow or another incorporating The Exorcist into their theme park. Yes, I, I've been to Halloween Horror Nights. It's fun. And I know it's a big draw, but people are going to go regardless of whether The Exorcist IP is represented there. Like, and they're not going to build The Exorcist land. This isn't going to be Star Wars for them. They're not going to have The Exorcist hotel interactive role-playing game experience as much as actually that does sound fun. And maybe I'd pay for that, which I didn't pay for this movie because... Like, who, who cares? Come on. This is I'm going to wait to watch this one on streaming, just like I watched all the Halloween movies on streaming. I, I just don't understand this because it's so contrary to the model that made horror the force that it is today. It's not just, as you said, your description wasn't wrong, Sonny, of, of how horror has typically worked economically, which is you make them cheap and sometimes to make uh, a, a little bit of money and sometimes to make a ton. It's that you make them cheap and sometimes they even lose money. But it doesn't matter because if you're losing $5 million at a time and then every 10th one makes $150 million, you're still doing pretty well. And this is $30 million on top of $400 million. And they're going to spend $30 million again twice, so that ends up, that's a $500 million expenditure to make three Exorcist films? Really? Yeah. I, 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 like, I, I don't know. Maybe there's just a, a part of the horror community that really, really wants this, but on the, on the uh, numbers from this weekend, it just doesn't look like it. And I, I would not have imagined that in 2021 either. The thing is, you can look at there's there's a point of view where you look at this and it makes some sense. You see Halloween does huge numbers. You hire the same guys to come in and reboot this franchise. They're doing kind of the same thing. They're bringing back the old uh, character to, you know, lead the fight against the evil. Like there's a universe in which this kind of makes sense, kind of. But it makes sense at like. You, you spend $100 million on the rights, maybe. maybe. Sure, but even with Halloween, there's a deep well of retro nostalgia that I frankly just don't see in the world for, for the Exorcist movies. And that's true of Star Wars, right? Like the Star Wars, let's bring the legacy sequels where you bring back some of the old cast and introduce some new cast, right? That, that sort of thing makes sense for franchises that people still have a deep lingering affection for and want more of. I think people like the original Exorcist film. They remember it as being a deeply scary movie. But I don't think that this it's one of these things that people are just clamoring for. Oh, what I want is a new Exorcist movie every two years for the rest of my... No, nobody wants that. Not nobody, but not enough people to justify $400 million. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, look, I, I'm not a business expert, but... You know, when you're thinking about making deals in the private sector or, you know, thinking about what makes a company profitable, there are all these sort of extant benchmarks about, you know, what a stock's value sort of ought to be relative to its earnings, et cetera. And it feels like in the, you know, sort of crazed era we've just lived through in the entertainment industry, there are not those same kind of benchmarks for valuing IP, right? I mean, does it make sense to spend the value of like the entire box office run of The Exorcist on its rights? Does it, you know, is there some sort of algorithm that is, you know, 
the gross of the first movie plus something. I mean, I, IP is just an excellent example of where the sort of business sense of the industry and its ability to kind of value itself seems to have gone just bonkers off the rails. And, you know, look, Hollywood is not the same thing as like selling, you know, auto parts to a network of Midwestern dealers, right? Like audiences are funny. And, you know, IP, like there is a sort of moneyball approach you can take to IP as well, right? I mean, I don't think that Shondaland paid a fortune for the rights to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton novels, but there's been a huge hit for Netflix. They've also spun off a pretty, what I understand to be a pretty successful series of events. There's a whole sort of version of, like the that universe is sort of expandable beyond the original texts and can be sort of played out in book sales. And so, you know, you can take a sort of sensible Moneyball approach to IP and do pretty well, but I don't think anyone, there's not just sort of a, like a business sense here of, how you figure out what stuff is worth that seems to be sort of applied consistently. Totally. but And and part of this is all driven by the panic that the streamers had about IP, right? This has always been the knock on Netflix is that they don't have a Marvel-like product that will, that gets, you know, a built-in fan base to come in. They've had well, some For a success. period of time, they had Marvel on television before Disney Plus existed. Right, but and they didn't own it. They didn't that's own correct. it. They, they, they were, were licensing it. it you they know? built and part they, of their streaming brand on the back of Marvel. Right. So so the, you know, the, this is this is this is why they spent $450 million on the Knives Out movies, is because they were like, this is a movie that has done very well for us on the service. We need to, we it's a recognized IP. Those don't come on the market very frequently. So we're gonna we're gonna overspend for this one. Again, I kind of understand Universal doing this in 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 a way. There's built-in audience there, et cetera, et cetera. But it just still this whole era of Hollywood is going to make for a fascinating number of books one day. And everyone is going to like marvel at it with horror and just be like, what, what, on, what, what did they do to their business? What did they do to their industry? This sort of deal makes sense for a property that can be spun off not only into some number of movies, but also into a bunch of other ancillary products. And so for Marvel or for Lucasfilm, which have existing huge, uh, not just a wealth of, of uh, IP and stories, but have purchased with children and teenagers in particular who will buy lunchboxes and toys and stuffed things, plushies. A big deal makes a lot of sense. And frankly, Disney got a steal on both Lucasfilm and Marvel. They paid about $4 billion, I believe, for each one of those IPs. And I mean, just incredibly good pickups on the part of Disney when they did that, right? And you, But you have to think, is the Exorcist universe worth 10% of what Marvel was worth? Yes, I think people were a little skeptical that Marvel was worth would become worth as much as it became. But could the Exorcist universe possibly be worth that? What What are the other products besides a couple of movies and the Halloween Horror Nights featuring stuff from The Exorcist? It's still just Halloween Horror Nights. You're still just going to have a guy run after you with a chainsaw. It's, they actually do that. Uh, it's the, the chainsaws don't have... Um, don't like they took the the chain off of them. Really the, selling me guys, on this. Yeah, it's, this it's awesome. Nights. It's it's actually pretty fun. Uh, but like it, it's just the guy with a chainsaw. Either way, it's just one in one case. I guess they he's doing it in a branded exorcist room. I don't know. I I like truly don't get 
the idea that this had some sort of spin-off other uh like value beyond a trilogy of movies which like the best case scenario for these for a movies like this today is that they're going to make about 200 million dollars each and i think that's a a huge huge stretch isn't the flip side of this also that in the ip gold rush a lot of stuff got locked up and has been just sort of sitting around undeveloped the example of this that always makes me tear my hair out is there's this young adult novelist called Tamora Pierce who's been writing a sort of ongoing series that's essentially a 200-year social history of this kingdom. It's like a bunch of sort of connected franchises, one of which is like The Wire with Magic, one of which is a great like girl disguises herself as a boy and like comes of age as an awesome lady knight. Like it should be, you know, I cannot imagine that they paid very much of it for this. But Lionsgate's just, as far as I can tell, been like sitting on the rights forever and doing nothing with it. And I have to imagine that there are a lot of other properties like this. And so my only hope for the downturn is that people, you know, if they stop shelling out money for stuff that they don't know what they're going to do with, that they actually look at some of the stuff that they bought and say like, hey, we have some good stuff here. Let's actually make it. Yeah. I mean, that's always been kind of the case, uh, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, stuff gets stuff gets optioned. And the author gets really excited and then just nothing happens with it for like 10 years. That is not necessarily new. But yeah, I mean, it's it's totally frustrating and uh, annoying. All right. Um, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that Universal spent the GDP of a small country on uh, a series <laughs> of Exorcist movies? Alyssa. Hugely controversial. Peter. It's a controversy, and it's going to be more of a controversy when every movie for the next 10 years is a Mattel property because they can't figure out anything to sell to people. Yeah. I think it's a controversy, but I also just think that, like, Universal's not alone in this, and you're going to see a lot of really questionable products uh, headed out here in the next few years. All right. Uh, Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on our Favorite short films, what we like about the medium, etc. Speaking of cinematic shorts, on to the main event. This week, we're discussing the four short films based on Roald Dahl short stories uh, directed by Wes Anderson and released by Netflix this week. The shorts, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, The Swan, Poison, and The Rat Catcher uh, were announced at Con earlier this year where Anderson's Asteroid City was debuting. Uh, And then they just kind of showed up on Netflix at some point last week. I want to talk about the release strategy of this uh, this this series of shorts, as well as a, a thing I have taken to calling Netflix-induced apathy. But we'll we'll get to that. Um, uh, and I'm happy to say about the shorts that they are uh, they're quite interesting as formal experiments. I'm not sure I love the effect that Anderson is going for here, but I, I it's it was interesting to watch in in a very real way. The wonderful story of Henry Sugar is the longest of these. It clocks in at nearly 40 minutes, including credits. Uh, the other three are all 19 minutes or so. Uh, the all, all four of the shorts share actors. You've got Ben Kingsley, Richard Ayoade. I, I apologize for butchering his name. Benedict Cumberbatch and Rupert Friend uh, is uh, they're all they're in some or all of these. And Ray Fiennes uh, plays both some characters in the shorts and also introduces and narrates as Roald Dahl, the storyteller. Um, Henry Sugar is the story of a wealthy Brit who learns how to see through playing cards so he can cheat a blackjack. Poison is about a man who thinks he has a snake on his chest and is desperate to get it off. The Swan is about a bully child uh, who is forced into dangerous situations by his tormentors. And 
and the rat catcher is about a rat catcher. Uh, of course, all of these things are about something slightly deeper. Poison, for instance, is about the hidden evil of bigotry, while the swan is a surrealist examination of the powerlessness of youth that animates so many of Roald Dahl's full-length novels, and I think is much darker than its ending uh, might suggest. Um, the way I described them in my newsletter last week is that they're like visual audiobooks. Then the characters not only speak their dialogue, but they also narrate their actions and include dialogue instructions, e.g. Uh, a character who is speaking will turn to the camera and say, he said at the end of his line, and then turn back and continue acting, or uh, narrate walking down a hall chasing after somebody. The effect is a little overwhelming at times. I'm not going to lie. I occasionally thought to myself, everybody shut up. Stop talking for a minute, please. There's too much talking. Uh, the whole thing is much like Asteroid City or the French Dispatch, designed to draw attention to the artifice of the storytelling itself. Backgrounds are wheeled in and out like it's a stage play. Uh, the camera glides from one set to another. Uh, there's lots of little uh, tricky storytelling things like that. Again, I mostly like this, this these, these productions. Um, uh, even though I, I kind of wish in retrospect that I had watched them over the course of several days, maybe one a night or something like that, instead of all at once. Uh, Peter, I think you said you did that watching over a, a few days. The effect of watching them back to back to back to back over the course of 90 minutes or so was was frankly a bit, it was just a bit much for me. Uh, Alyssa, what did you make of Wes Anderson's series of Roll Doll shorts at Netflix.com? I like these a lot. And um Part of it is that I'm I am hoping that this is a further step towards the inevitable Wes Anderson stage play, which I just really want to see him do because he, I think feel like he's clearly headed in that direction. Um, and I I grew up on Roald Dahl in a pretty profound way. I mean, one of the earliest books my parents read to me was a first edition of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I've read a lot of his sort of memoiristic stuff, including um, Boy and Going Solo, um, both of which are terrific if neither of you have read them before. And, you know, this collection of short stories um, – you know, is still in my parents' house. I actually reread it a couple of weeks ago. And so I really love Doll. I love the sort of nastiness and cruelty and the sort of the bravery of his work in a way. And, you know, I I think of the three of us, I probably enjoy his formality and artifice the most in part because you know, I mean, Peter, you've done more theater than I have, but I'm probably the one of us who has gone to the most theater most recently. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you're correct, Sonny, that with this sort of visual audiobooks idea, and in the wonderful story of Henry Sugar in particular, I was really struck by the way the the pacing of the speech feels very much the way that a reader might read faster at a moment when they're getting excited or, you know, when they have to slow down for a bit because they, the story has sort of changed a voice. And so I found that really fascinating, right? And these are experimental, right? They're not, they feel like Anderson playing a little bit, which is not to say that they're not finished or impeccable the way that all of his work is, but it's been fascinating to watch sort of the cadence of his movie making feel like it's sped up as he's working through some ideas. Um, I really 
thought both Dev Patel and Rupert Friend in particular were wonderful in this collection of movies. And in part, that's because Friend in some ways gets what I think is kind of the meatiest role in The Swan, where he's both sort of narrating and looking back at this childhood trauma. And so I don't know that I have something terribly deep to say about them, but watching these just brought me very powerfully back to childhood in a way that I appreciated it, in a way that just doesn't happen for me at the movies very often, in part because a lot of the movies that are made for kids these days don't have that core of sort of ugliness and don't place the same demand on their child characters in a way the way that Dolls work does. And this stuff isn't even as dark in some senses as like the witches or uh, or Matilda and or James and the Giant Peach to a certain extent. And, you know, we have a lot of young adult dystopias, but we don't have a lot of storytelling where genuine children are in real peril or, you know, in situations with adults who are neglectful or cruel to them. And I kind of think that's a little bit of a loss because real childhood is like that sometimes. And children feel real fury and disgust and terror. And, you know, watching his kid characters work through that, I I found, you know, important for me as a child in a literary sense, but also in a sort of moral sense as well. The Swan is, I think, my favorite and the most interesting of these, again, because it really hews to the visual audiobook ideal and aesthetic in the sense that you have Rupert Friend not only narrating and saying the lines of his own character, but also doing the voices of the bullies. It's like having a narrator read the book in the, in the way that a narrator changes his voice when different characters are talking. As somebody who spends a lot of time listening to audiobooks at the gym, that's how I get through my workouts. You know, I, I love a good performance where where the, uh, the, the, the author is making an attempt to differentiate the actual voices of the, uh, the real people who are talking. And it is also the the darkest of them because I mean I, I spoilers I guess if you if you're worried about spoilers for this uh, series of shorts if you haven't read the story uh, you, uh, skip ahead a, a minute or two here because I I remain convinced that the swan ends with the boy being murdered that's I mean he's being shot at by the bullies and I understand that uh, friends says that he is narrating that this is his story that he's telling but there's nothing you know that says he doesn't explicitly say I am still alive. It ends with a boy being shot out of a tree and then flying away on wings. It's literally, he's he's murdered. He flies away as an angel. That's, I mean, it's possible, but also, I mean, whether or not he lives or dies, and I agree having read the story that that's, you know, sort of an open question. It's also a situation where the sort of visual audiobook um, does the most interesting work with the content because – it's very much a story of someone, a narrator, whether still living or alive, processing something traumatic that happened to him. And so the sort of switch back and forth between the perspective, the sort of talking about himself in the third person is very much in keeping with someone who is trying to sort of both look at this horror that happened to him and trying, but also trying to keep some space between himself and the experience. And I think it works quite well there. Um, although I don't think the other three are bad in any way or that the device doesn't work. I just think there happens to be a sort of happy harmony between form and content in The Swan. 
Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the uh, Roll Doll shorts? I loved it. I said into the microphone, wondering what Sonny and Alyssa would think of my delivery. I hadn't warned them in advance that I was going to do this. I appreciated the theatricality, the artifice of it. It seemed almost Brechtian in the sense of German playwright Bertolt Brecht, who argued that drama should be distancing, that it should confront the viewer with its artificiality. No, it's so good. It's so wonderful. And the way to watch it is spread out. And this is, I think, the the answer to your Netflix-induced apathy The problem here is that Wes Anderson saw that this was an opportunity to do something that wouldn't work if you just sat and watched it all the way through in a movie theater, even though you can watch all of these in about an hour and 35 or hour and 40 minutes. If you just power through all of this, all of this voice that is just like this, it's all the same intonation, even if it is uh, spread across several different actors. Yes, of course, Ray Feinstein's a little bit different than Dev Patel, but like it becomes, it does become too much. And... If you watch it in the way that you read a book of short stories, a story each night, you know, after dinner, 15, 20 minutes for uh, some of them and 40 minutes for others, if you watch it that way and treat it as this chapter book of linked stories with the same voice and uh, related ideas, but but not all, it's not all part of the same package in the way that a feature film is. If you watch it that way, I think it actually works better. And I, I watched this over three days. I watched uh, Sugar, uh, Mr., uh, the, the Tale of Mr. Sugar, which is the, the long one first, and then I watched the three shorts, two on one day, and then one actually just about an hour before we started this podcast. Uh, the, the last one I watched with this was The Swan, so that's the one that is most recent in my and freshest in my head. And I, I just feel like it's not just that he that that Anderson is doing all of this formal experimentation in terms of making it very play-like. It's that it is a formal experiment with the streaming form. And he's decided to do something with it that would be not impossible. You can totally imagine a night of Wes Anderson shorts playing at the E Street Theater here in Washington, D.C. And people would go see that because people like Wes Anderson and it would kind of work, but it would just be a little bit too much. It would feel by the end a little bit grating, frankly, in the way that Asteroid City was a little bit too much of its own weird self. Um when it came out earlier this year. And and I, I think this is, as a package, I think this is, I liked this better than Asteroid City. And I, I liked Asteroid City. It's maybe one of Anderson's weaker uh, features, but it's but it's a, it's pretty good. But this is better. And this, this form allows him to be more fully himself, uh, in part because it's, it's not just, in part because it's split up, but also because it's smaller. And Wes Anderson has been, shrinking in some ways his his vision for things becoming and I don't mean that it's less grand or something like that I mean that it's just more intimate and more microscopic and and more focused on tiny little details uh the the further we go into his filmmaking career and putting this on the small screen in a four to three television like you know old school boxy ratio it just gives it a different texture and makes you treat it differently than if you saw it on the big screen in a movie theater with a bunch of other people. It's intimate. It uh, it has the experience. You you talked about it in audiobook, Sonny. Um, Alyssa, you talked about just sort of the experience of being, uh, you know, of, of reading books. And to me, this had this was as close as I have come to the feeling of being read to by my parents, which was a huge amount of my, like, I mean, I don't know. I had a lot of conversations with them, but... When I was a kid, the way that I related to my parents in some sense was they read books to me, especially when I was very young. And it was just this 
they they just read and read and read and read to me until one day, uh, as, as the story goes, I grabbed the book from my mom and was like, you're not reading fast enough. And, and then I read to myself from there. Um, but that intimacy of a parent reading to a child is what this captures without being, without explicitly being, oh, here we're going to have the, you're the kid and here's the parent, you know, tucking you in framing device. You get a, something a little bit like that with Rafe finds the old man in the chair, you know, as the kind of narrator of all of these things, I guess meant to represent doll, though that's never made quite explicit unless it's in the credits somewhere where I didn't see it. I think it's in the credits. Yeah. Um, okay. So you get a little bit of that, but it's not, it's not quite that he has explicitly framed these as bedtime stories, but they work that way. And the, the fact that they can work that way on, a, you know, a, a middle-aged adult is pretty impressive. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone else decide to take the Netflix auteur money and make something not just that they couldn't make, you know, elsewhere, but that wouldn't work in another format and on another platform. Or wouldn't work as well. And this to me seems like like Wes Anderson actually, yes, there's all this like, oh, there's not the fanfare that you would get with a new Wes Anderson product being delivered to theaters. But Wes Anderson actually seems to have, have taken the Netflix challenge and beaten it in a way that, I don't know, maybe even Martin Scorsese with, you know, oh, I'm just going to make a three and a half an hour movie about Catholic guilt. Like, like as much as I like all of these things and maybe even love them, this seems to be someone who understands the formal properties of streaming as a delivery device, because that's what Wes Anderson is really good at, is understanding the formal properties of narrative mediums. And he decided that's what Netflix is good for, that and that's what I'm going to use this Netflix money for. It's yeah. a really smart decision that from one of our most in, most interestingly intellectual filmmakers. And I think it it just works all the way through, especially if you split it up and watch it over multiple nights like I did. I want to talk about this a little bit in the bonus episode. But the uh, one thing Netflix has done very well uh, is champion the short film though they usually hide it as an anthology series but we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that on Friday. I do want to discuss one thing about Netflix because here here's my experience of how the series of movies came to my attention. I literally turned on Netflix so I could turn on Miraculous or something for my kids. Uh and uh, as right before I switched over to uh to turn on their you know, turn on their profiles. I, like on the front page for me, it was, oh, hey, look, new Wes Anderson shorts, uh, Roald Dahl, wonderful story of Andrew Sugar. I was like, oh, shit, that's out. And then even then I was like, oh, it's out. OK, well, I can watch this now. It took me two or three days to get around to it. I literally watched other movies every night, um, not even for work. That was, It wasn't a work. I was just like, I want to watch this. I want to watch uh, In the Mouth of Badness on the Criterion channel one night. Uh, it was, another night, it was something else. And if you if you had told me, you know, like five years ago that uh, you, you're going to get a series of Wes Anderson directed adaptations of Roald Dahl stories, and they're going to be right on your TV and you can watch them whenever you want. I can't imagine my response to that at the time would have been, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. I can't help but feel that this is very explicitly a function of streaming and uh, the the kind of like endless morass of content, content, hashtag content that we have now. Uh, it just doesn't feel special. I agree with that to some extent, but I also think it there is something kind of special about it. It's... 
which is, like I said, the, the form itself, which works really well. But it's also part of that form is that it doesn't it doesn't demand hype and it doesn't demand that you watch it right now. And again, I'll just go back to the metaphor of a book of short stories by an author who you often read their novels. You order that book of short stories, even your very, very favorite novelist ever. Do you open that book and just plow through it the night that you get it? I, maybe. I don't know. But I'll tell you what happens when I order books of short stories. I sit in a pile of books and a month later I read one of the short stories and then another month later I read another one and then maybe I go on vacation and I kind of pick and choose a couple more stories from the rest of the book because I've got an extra time to read but that's how I that's how I read them even if it's somebody whose writing I otherwise might have like dug into the the weekend that it comes out because I'm a huge fan of their novels because the, these are just short little slight things and they are not meant to be obsessed over or sort of breathlessly approached in the same way. And that's actually okay. And and you did go and watch them, Sonny. Yes, of course, because we have to do a podcast, but you would have gone and watched them at some point, even if we'd done, even if we'd talked about Reptile this week instead. And that's that seems to me like Netflix got you with them, number one, so they, they scored. And number two, that's a perfectly reasonable way to approach these things. Not everything has to be a big moment, uh, something that you're super excited for. Not everything has to be an event. Sometimes it can just be, this is an interesting little confection, an amuse-bouche. I can never figure out, I don't know if I'm saying that the right way. Like, it's a little bite, and he's made a He's made a couple of delightful little bites of plates. movies. I, I love small plates. Small plates. Well, I had a whole dinner of small plates on Saturday, and then came home and watched the wonderful tale of, the delightful tale of Mr. Sugar. Well, aren't you fancy? I mean, the one thing I would say, look, Sonny, I have written at length at about the extent to which I think streaming has been really deleterious to our mass culture in the sense that it makes everything asynchronous, right? Um, or at least on-demand streaming where you don't have a sort of weekly release model. And this, you know, this collection of Wes Anderson adaptations is the rare time when that actually works because it's evoking the feeling of reading and reading is, you know, even when everybody's sitting down and reading, you know, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows starting at 12.01 on its release, it's asynchronous, right? I mean, yeah, I read right. much faster than my husband to his eternal disconcertion. Um, I think I probably read faster than most people. So, for example, like I read Going Infinite, the new Michael Lewis book when it came out this week. But most of the time, you know, I'm reading books that just aren't even on people's radar, right? Like probably the best book I will end up reading this year is Johnny Steinberg's Winnie and Mandela, this joint biography of um, Winnie and Nelson Mandela. It's terrific. Anyone with any passing interest in South, in South African history sh should read it. But, you know, what Anderson is trying to do here is evoke that experience of reading, both in the sense that you can circle around and come back, that... You know, the dialogue is sort of the, you know, there's very little cadence shift within one of the individual sort of monologues here, which is sort of the way that, you know, you read when you're in a groove. Um, and so this is the rare case in which, you know, streaming's asynchronicity is appropriate to the form and which I'm okay with it. But um, I do think broadly that, you know, that encouragement of asynchronicity in what used to be mass media has been really bad for us. The monotonousness of the reading, though, is also so expertly done and 
with yes. just a oh, couple of different ticks. So we, we've been saying it's a lot and it's maybe too much. And I just want to actually praise it also uh, because with just a couple of different worst decisions, it could have been not just too, a little too much if you watch all of them in a row, but way too much even within the context of any one of these shorts. And it could have been just a like a, a bad decision that just came off as like, wow, I didn't want to hear like listen to that the whole time. And part of the reason that it works is that Anderson very cleverly shakes up the the format throughout each like at least in at least one point he will provide a, a moment of uh, like a high point of danger uh of there's a bit in poison where the camera suddenly just sort of like becomes totally like uh, you know starts shaking it's not shaking it becomes a, a a handheld camera and starts moving kind of crazily after all of these quite formal shots there's the the train rushing over uh in the swan um but also at the beginning of uh of mr sugar there's this little bit before the reading starts where Rafe finds, gathers his stuff and he talks about his pencil and his pad. And this is, this is right, this is before you've heard any of the reading voice. And he's just kind of speaking a little bit to himself, thinking, well, I like to have a pencil that's sharp and a, a, a bit of erasing, you know, eraser, whatever it is that he's talking about. And that that little tiny pause before you get into the formalness of it gives it this incredible human cast and, and texture. And it shows you up front that this is artifice and that this is being done intentionally. And it makes you pay attention to it in a way that's totally different than if Ray Fiennes had just started speaking in dramatic monotone to the camera for the whole time. And I just... Like it was that little tiny bit of of human naturalistic preparation for the oddness that is to come that totally sold me from second one from the first frame of of that short. I, I just it colored the whole thing for me, I think, in part because it's even though there's no watching order, you're sort of supposed to watch that one first. It's the, the one that people are getting, you know, talking about the most that had the, the preview at the festival. And it's just it's just such a smart decision to show, you know what, we're doing this on purpose and we're doing it to make you make to make you pay attention and we can turn it off anytime. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Wes Anderson adaptations of Roald Dahl short stories on Netflix.com. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. And if I can package these together and count them as a feature, they might make my top 10 list this year. Why can't you do that? There's nothing. There's no rule that says you can't do that. Do it. We'll see. All right. Uh, I also give it a thumbs up. That is it for this week's episode. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday and tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBun. Welcome to that it is, in fact the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Friday.